0: going on everyone and welcome to another episode of writing friction and as always today's guest is pretty cool everyone say hello to todd goldberg how are you todd
1: you know i'm feeling pretty good uh i spent uh the morning today watching american civics at work (laughs) that felt pretty great Uh um and then i went to target where i feared for my life (laughs) and then i came back and uh, I took a lactate pill.
0: Yeah. Okay. All right. It's Just prepare scream. yourself for this. <laughs> and now here I am talking to you. I, mean, I, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of things to be scared for your, in your life going into Target these days. Exactly. <laughs>
1: well, sure. you know, here, here's the thing, man. Like it used to be, I'd go to Target or anywhere. I'd leave my house. Right. And I wouldn't have to ponder my mortal coil to go and get a taco. Yeah. And now every time I leave the house, I'm like, well, Do I want to be dead in two weeks?
0: It's crazy, man. I know. I mean, you know, the podcast, I started this podcast a couple of months ago, and it's grown so much so quickly. And it's amazing what's been going on with people. You know, it's it's the Zoom thing. I see everyone's bookcases. Everyone has a thing behind them. I'm actually trying to pick out what's behind you, but I can't. It's a little too blurry. Anything worth mentioning?
1: Well, let's see here. On the wall, we've got... Uh we've got about a third of my published books yeah. up here on the wall. So my new book, which is coming out shortly, is my 15th book. I mean, so yeah, you've got a uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. So we've got about 50% of my published books. Awesome, yeah, frames.
0: Yeah,
1: over here we've got um we've got books, uh, we've got nonfiction research, and then anthologies are back over that way. We yeah. have some various Star Wars
0: paraphernalia. It's itemized. It's, is it alphabetical order?
1: Oh, it, 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 there's a whole system.
0: I can only imagine. So, uh, like,
1: there's a whole section over here for uh, badass Jew stuff. Hey,
0: let's talk about it.
1: I Well, you know, I write about a hitman who hides out as a rabbi. So, I got to have badass Jew shit easy to grab because yeah. why well, I, well, I, I, I seem smart, I don't have the talent to memorize. So I got the badass Jew shit real close. Yeah. And then I have books on counterinsurgency beneath them in case they (laughs) come next
0: to it. Yeah. This is the part where I always warn people, um, you not only have one Jew, you have two Jews now on the podcast. So well, my, don't
1: say it out loud, man. Still
0: come. <laughs> um, so wait, so you're pointing, for the people who can't see, you're pointing behind your shoulder to some of your published books. Um, I want to talk about two of them specifically because you're kind of new to my world only because I'm new to the Twitter world. And I came across you via Scott O'Connor. He was on the podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, and I saw you kind of guys had back and forth, so whatever, I went into you and you seemed like, you know, a super dope guy. Um, and then I went a little farther in before we did the podcast and realized you were writing about mafia-related stuff mm-hmm. with the tinge of Judaism to it, and I'm like, I have to fucking. We can talk for, th- for thirteen hours. <laughs> um, a couple of things. One, Well, why? Why mafia? Did you? Was that a thing growing up for you? Were you around it? Where are you from?
1: Uh, well, so I grew up in the Bay Area. Um, oh, cool. and
0: then, SF podcast,
1: right? So I, I grew up in Walnut Creek. Um, you know the hard the hard streets of the Dub C. You know. What you, it you start rolling down Ignatio Valley, man. You don't know what's going to happen. You don't know who you're going to run into. Standing in front of the old Nordstroms. They got crazy out there. So I lived, <laughs> lived in Walnut Creek. And then I lived uh, where I live now, which is uh, Palm Springs. Okay. Um, but my mom, um, she she sort of liked to date dudes who were like, they said that they owned restaurants, but the restaurants never made any money. Or they owned suit stores, but no one ever bought any suits there. And they always had names like Bobby M. And you're like, well, what? how come Bobby doesn't have a last name? We're like, well, his name isn't really Bobby either. And this isn't <laughs> so, Walnut Creek. Well, this she dated some, some mid-level dudes in the Bay Area. <laughs> and then when we moved to Palm Springs... Got it, yeah. Palm Springs is an open city. And mm-hmm. it's always been an open city. And so... The Chicago families, the New York families, the L.A. families, they all um, vacation, basically, in, in the desert. And, the, you know, like I went to school with like the Zangaris and the Bananos and all these dudes who were the children or the nieces and nephews of all of these, um, you know, like capos. In, in these Bananos countries. being one of
0: the five families right. from New York.
1: Right. And all these guys owned restaurants or hotels or had, um, interests in these places. And so it was always a big part of Palm Springs. And I lived here and I'd been coming to Palm Springs even before we moved here. I moved here in, um, my first year of high school. Um, but my family had been coming to Palm Springs since the 1950s. Oh, wow. Because it was the only place where Jews could play golf. Mm -hmm.
0: Doesn't Sinatra have a little bit of history down there too?
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Big history, big history. And my mom and the Sinatras were friends. So my mom um, was the society columnist for the newspaper out here. So she was sort of, she was a gossip columnist. Oh, wow. So she knew all these people and hung out with all of them, and and that was her life. So it was always sort of like floating around the ether when I was a kid. Um, But on top of that, like, you know, I, I grew up reading crime fiction, Um, you know, crime fiction was my young adult fiction. You know, I read the, you know, Elmore Leonard and John McDonald and uh, Dashiell Hammett and all that shit growing up. And so like, I wasn't reading John Green because I'm I'm 50 years old. So John Green wasn't alive yet. Um, I was reading, I was reading, you know, the noir classics. That was my shit. I read, you know, in seventh grade. Yeah. So that I think that part of it was sort of a natural thing, but I've always been fascinated by um, the banality of evil um, and and also the glorification of a certain kind of organized crime and how, you know, people want to be a gangster. They don't they don't want to be a, a, a vice lord or a gangster disciple. They want to be Sonny Corleone and. I want to know why they want to be that. Like, why all all it is is a a sociopath in a nice suit. Um, But, you know, gangster fiction and gang life, gangster life is part and parcel to the American dream. It's the idea that I want to do whatever I want to do and I want to get away with it and you can't tell me anything, I'm my own man. And that's always appealed to me. So when I wrote Gangsterland, which came out in um, 2014, I had been writing sort of around gangsters for a long time. I just finished uh, a period of time where I was writing burn notice. And, um, you know, there's always been, there's a big organized crime element to burn notice. Um, and I just knew that I wanted to write about this character that I had written a short story of that had been in an anthology and, um, had been optioned for a TV show and stuff. Um, And so I took a couple years off, actually, to become a better Jew to (laughs) write about this guy becoming a rabbi. Like, I had to read all the books if I wanted to write about a fake rabbi. I did you
0: you grow up religious at all?
1: No, no. I mean, we're we're corn, beef, and mayonnaise Jews. Yeah, yeah.
0: I call it or Larry David Jews. Yeah, yeah exactly. Well, Larry David but <laughs> more Jewish. Well, I mean, not to cut you off here, and we'll continue where you are, but I mean, you know, we're running on a similar theme because I grew up where they filmed The Sopranos. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my father almost bought a restaurant. And at the final meeting in Bergen County, New Jersey, 20 minutes west of Manhattan, in the final meeting, two guys that were never there before entered the room. And it was told to him that, you know, not only do you have to pay you also have to pay you know bobby and whatever so in my life growing up it was definitely a, i'm a little younger um i'm 33 you know so paul costellano was killed the year before i was born right um but you know but i became obsessed with Really, through the Sopranos. And then through that, you know, read all the books, five families, everything. So, yeah, um, yeah, so yeah, continue with what you're saying. With well, I'm,
1: I mean, it, it's that thing like, you know, w- once you sort of see this stuff in real life, yeah. um, you get interested in it. You know, the, all these people that were my mom's friends and that were sort of circling around us. You know, there was this one guy named Paul whose restaurant burned down every three years. <laughs> it would be weird because it's not like he was in a place where there was like, oh, exposed wires. Because he'd get a new restaurant every three years. <laughs> and every three years, it would burn down. <laughs> oh, yeah.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, there was then, a pizza. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: I mean, even even silly stuff. Like, I worked at, um, at a hotel in Palm Springs when I was a kid. I worked at the Riviera as a pool boy. But I worked for this guy called... Um, called the tan man <laughs> and the tan man ran this grift at the pool where he sold people suntan lotion and mink oil. But really what we did is we'd sell it to these people and then we'd steal the bottles back and fill them with baby oil and sell them back to these people over and over and over again. And one day I went, I went to work and tan man was gone. And I was like, tan man owes me $167. Like I want my money. And so I'm walking around the hotel, the Riviera, which is this very old hotel yeah. in Palm Springs. Well, actually, it was a very old hotel. It's now uh, Jimmy Buffett's Margaritaville. But that's another <laughs> story. Um, and so I keep saying, like, hey, where's Tanman? Where's Tanman? He owes me $167. No, he doesn't. <laughs> and they're like, man, we don't know what you're talking about. We've never even seen you. Uh, like, go talk to that guy. Go talk to uh, that guy. And so I get run around. I end up in this dude's office, who's the general manager. And he's sitting behind a big ass desk, and his you know shirt's unbuttoned halfway down his chest. He's got rings on fingers. I didn't know you could wear rings on. And I'm like, hey man, um, I work for Tan Man at the pool, and he owes me $167. I just want my money. And the guy's like, who the fuck are you? Yeah. And I was like, I'm Todd. I work for Tan Man. I want my money. And he's like, you got a W nine here? And I was like, uh, no. Yeah. I was like, get the fuck out of my office. Yes. I was like, oh yeah. shit. Like, like as soon as he said that, I realized I've I've misjudged the situation in yeah. a profound yeah. way. And I went home and I said to my mom, "Mom, the general manager of the Riviera wouldn't give me my money and told me to get the fuck out the property." And she's like, "You asked the GM of the Riviera for money?
0: Yeah.
1: No. <laughs> like, he's a capo in a crime yeah. family." And I was like, oh. So all that f- fed into it, you know, yeah, all for of sure.
0: it i mean yeah. so like, i mean were you a fan growing up like the godfathers and things like that of i course. mean was it just yeah. so you fed into it yeah. um yeah i mean well not to kind of piggyback off of what you're talking about to turn it on to me but one of you know i for my first book was uh, i wrote last year got published it was a boxing novella i had in jersey city and i had a mafia character uh mario skinny legs ritazzi and you know and uh you know so i've written about it but i'm one of the things i'm writing now one of the novels is a jewish mafia novel based in los angeles in like the early 90s and i'm trying to but here's the thing and i well, now that we're talking about it, i can just ask you you know with now it's so much literally you know Obviously, The Godfather was a novel before it was a book, Uh, you know, uh, with so much having been worked on in the genre, turning it into a Jewish kind of thing is new. And you're one of the only authors that I I have found who's even done it. So now that I'm also writing about, I mean, you know, what elements were you trying to combine? I mean, you put it in Chicago, you know, I mean, are you trying to make it super Jewy? I mean, how do you do it? How do you play that balance?
1: You know, it's, it's, uh, it's hard. Um, well, the first thing is, um, you publish that book and I will sue you. So there's that. <laughs> <laughs> Just FYI. Uh, um,
0: yeah, yeah.
1: You I'm like, I've worked hard for this niche. You come for my niche.
0: Don't worry. The first of the, the, the book that I'm trying to get published in the next couple of months has to do with a fictional rock and roll band. That is okay,
1: fine. Priority Perfect.
0: number one. Do not worry Perfect. about that.
1: Yeah. I will not write about a fictional rock and yeah. roll band. Um, you know, the, it, it's a tough balance. So, you know, the character that I write about, um, Rabbi David Cohen, he's not Jewish. You know, he is a Chicago hitman named Sal Cupertine who hides as a Jewish, as a rabbi in Las Vegas. Um, but by the act of hiding as a rabbi in order to do the job effectively, he becomes a Jew, basically. He has to. Um and so for me, you know, the, the Judaism and, you know, the Talmudic studies and the Midrash and all the stuff that comes into play is not about the faith. It's about the evolution of, uh, of reason in this guy um, and the evolution of empathy in him, that once he has shown um, a, a different way to live, that it changes the way he approaches his life. It doesn't make him any less of a stone-cold killer, mm-hmm. um, but it gives him different feelings about stuff. Uh, you know, the 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 thing, though, that um, has always been interesting to me is, you know, I, I've gone around and, and spoken at, you know, tons and tons of synagogues over the years because my book ends up getting picked by, you know, all of these Jewish book clubs.
0: H- how's that crowd? I, I can see that Old. being fun. Old. <laughs> <laughs> Old. Well, yes, but also hopefully humorous. Old. <laughs> okay, fair. We'll leave it at that. Fair enough. Fair enough.
1: <laughs> no, they're 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 quite funny. Yeah. Um, until you say the thing that I always ask, which is, would I be here if my last name were Sullivan? Yeah,
0: yeah.
1: And I wouldn't. Yeah. You know, so you 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 walk a very thin line, even um, as a Jew with anti-Semitism. You know, yeah. um, you know, pe people don't um. People don't, the the non-Jews don't want too much of it. And the ardent Jews want to tell you that you're wrong. Um, And so you have to, I think, um, figure out sort of where you are in in that world. I'm writing about a rabbi. I got to get a lot of shit right. Yeah. The whole conceit that I'm doing is that no one knows anything. And so my rabbi character will quote Bruce Springsteen. And say, well, you know, as the Talmud says, is a dream a lie if it don't come true, or is it something worse? And the people will be like, "Oh my God, Rabbi, thank you. That that does help things. Um, because if you quote, I knew Bruce I was born to run. Yeah, yeah. Like if you, if you quote <laughs> Bruce Springsteen um, and you say it in the right tone, it sounds like the Talmud. You know, I'm a Jersey like,
0: boy. Trust me, I'm well aware. I, yeah,
1: that's what I'm saying. It's like you know, two faces have I. Like, oh, thank you, Rabbi. It's like that's actually a song from Tunnel of Love. Um, so <laughs> it it it's a hard balance because no one wants to read a crime novel to learn about religion, and they don't want to read a religious book to learn about crime.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So you you know you'll you'll figure it out. Um, there will be some dark nights. Of oh no, I mean, I,
0: I wasn't like I wasn't sitting here trying to literally pick your brain. It was just I mean the coincidence was too uncanny. You know I'm but I'm the kind and this is what I'll ask you next. I'm the kind of writer that I'm working on seven different things at once. Right. You do the same thing. No. So are you one project at a time?
1: Uh, One sort of narrative project. I can write um, a book and a screenplay at the same time, or I can write um, a book and criticism at the same time, but I can't write two books at the same time, or I can't write a book and a short story at the same time. Uh Um, Because I keep so much of it in my head. I don't, I'm not an outliner, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, The stuff that I write is, is so much pinging around in my head that there's other things in there. um, I, I find it less effective. And that also ends up being a problem. Like, you know, when I'm re- working on a book and need to go to the grocery store and I'm like,
0: I don't know why I'm here or target. Yeah. I am <laughs> like,
1: I don't know why I'm here, but I do know that if someone pisses me off, I want to kill them.
0: Well, are you the kind of, I mean, are you writing on your phone doing voice memos and notes and stuff like that?
1: Um, I will, I will call myself and say, uh, things like, you know, remember, you know, bury body in desert in chapter seven. Or I'll be in the shower, and I'll scream to my wife, Wendy, come here. She'll come in. And I'll be like, go to my desk, write yeah. on a Post-it note, bullet enters his neck, but at an angle. Yeah. And you will be like, what the fuck are you
0: talking yeah. about? Don't worry. Yeah. Exactly. Well, I mean, we, we've talked to so many authors now that it's kind of the running theme where it's just, you know, you have to be open to all those kinds of things where it's just if a dude walks into a Starbucks wearing, you know, stiletto pumps, you know, you have to be open to the idea of like, I can use that to change a character in chapter three. Right. That, you know, it's been fucking with me the entire time. So it sounds like you're the kind of author who's you're open to that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah. And you know, particularly like for my new book, um, which is a story collection, Um, you know, I I had an arc that I knew that I wanted to write about. So there's 12 stories in the low desert. And I knew that there were different kinds of stories I wanted to write um, for different sort of parts of the overall narrative that I had in my mind. And so I'd be working on one story and an idea for something that I, a story that I had not even thought about yet, but that I sort of had an idea of what the emotion would be. Would pop pop in my head and I'd be like, ah shit. Shit. Yeah. And I'd write on a little piece of paper, like four other story, put in murder clown. It'd be like, I don't know what I'm using murder clown for, but I, I know that I want one. uh uh-huh. And I I think that's, you know, as writers, as you know, like, you know, when the muse shows up, you're not gonna be like, Oh, bro, I'm watching football. Like <laughs> you have to, you have to. Service the muse when he shows up, yeah I mean
0: are you a fairly are you fairly disciplined in that approach though where i mean are, are you write every day same time kind of thing or how how does your life operate with the routine uh, you know
1: you know like I, I take i take big breaks from from writing at some points too, so in addition to writing books, I also um direct and founded one of the largest creative writing programs in the country
0: okay And cool, so
1: cool. <laughs> i <laughs> I periodically need to do my job at, course. At, at UC Riverside. Um, and so there are days when I don't do any writing whatsoever. When I'm working on a book and when I'm finishing a book, I'm, I'm usually working five days a week. Yeah. But like right now, you know, uh, my new book comes out in February. I'm not really working on anything except for some rewrites on some stuff. And I'm doing that sort of as I want to. But, you know, I'm 15 books into a career so I know sort of what I need to do for um, for my rest, basically, like to recharge myself creatively. There, there was a period where I wrote three books in, uh, in very short order. I wrote Gangsterland, uh, which came out in 2014, and I wrote a book called The House of Secrets that I, I wrote with uh, my friend Brad Meltzer, and then I wrote Gangster Nation, which came out in 2018, And those three books ended up being 450 pages each. And when I was done with Gangster Nation, like, I did not want to write anything.
0: Most definitely, yeah.
1: You know, I was just so tired. I mean, tired emotionally, but also tired physically. Like, it's just, like, a lot of sitting on my ass.
0: Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And and, and mental gymnastics,
1: too. And so I really needed to recharge my batteries. And and so that means, like, not writing every single day. Going out and experiencing the world and, and living and listening to people and that's why i ended up writing a story collection after that because i i really felt like oh i want to i want to get back to work um but i also don't want to write the same i i have a third gangster novel i have to write but i just don't want to go back into that world yet i was just really tired um and so writing the stories was a great way for me to um to write another book um but not not exercise the same muscle to the point of exhaustion again.
0: So if we could, if we can't, I, I want to rewind the tape back a little bit. Sure. Um, you, uh, you said, you said you had, f- you have 15 novels out,
1: uh, 13 books of fiction, two books of nonfiction.
0: You've worked on, you said screenplays as well and everything. Where did it begin? You know, when did you get to writing? What did you first start writing? Were you writing short stories in the beginning? Were you writing poetry about heartbreak? You know, what, did, what got you into it all?
1: I was mostly writing Echo and the Bunnyman lyrics and giving okay, them Girls. Sure. <laughs> okay, for
0: sure. You're talking to a fish fan, so don't worry. <laughs>
1: um, well, I come from a family of writers. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the, the important thing is that I didn't learn to write until I was, I was quite old because I'm, I'm profoundly dyslexic. So I didn't learn to actually write until I was or read and write until I was about ten. Um, but you know, my my family are all writers. My mom uh, was a journalist. My dad was a broadcast journalist in the Bay Area um, and also in uh, in the Pacific Northwest. My brother has uh, published seventy novels and
0: oh, produced. 8 well, what's your brother's videos. name? Lee. Lee Goldberg.
1: Yeah. Great um we're a crime family um my sisters you know have written a bunch of books together and then one's an artist and the other is a lawyer and you know so writing is the family business my uncle has published you know uh, 15 books or something yeah so it was never something that seemed unattainable you know i I think and this is probably true for you i would guess like if you when you told your family oh i want to be a writer that you could have said oh I, i want to I want to be an NFL quarterback.
0: I did worse. I told them I wanted to be a rock and roll musician, and i and I moved into a van at the age of 22 and toured the country for 10 years. Well, that's not so bad. <laughs> I start. I started writing it uh, three years ago. I got in, but I'm. I've been reading. I mean, my father, you know, the man would read, would rather read than talk to me. So, you know, that was that was growing up. That's what it was. So I always read, but it was something I never thought I could actually do until a couple of years ago.
1: Well, you know, it's so funny. Like when I hear music, I mean, I'm a big, I'm a big music fan, and um, I don't understand how it's made. I don't understand orchestration at all. I understand how to write lyrics, right? Um, but I don't understand when they say, "All right, watch me for the changes." Like, I don't know what's happening, um, but I find myself so inspired by it, and I, you know, I'm a big fan of it, and I listen to it constantly. I was listening to music right before we got on. Um, but it's such an unknowable art to me. So if I had said to my own family, "Hey, I want to write books," they, they were like, "Oh, that's fine. You should go do that." If I had said, "I want to write books, but also I want to I want to learn how to play guitar," they would have been like, "Well, we don't play guitar. We are <laughs> we are Jews with very thick fingers. There's there's going to be no guitar playing in this family." Um, so anyway, um, <laughs> so I started out, um, you know, with with a deck full of cards that had already been turned over for me to yeah, play with. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I started out writing short stories and, um, you know, after college, I graduated college in 1994. I worked in advertising for a couple years. Um, and I was writing short stories and getting those sort of steadily published. And then after I had published probably, I don't know, two or three dozen stories over, you know, between for like in like three or four years, I was what kind of
0: publications?
1: Oh, you know, literary magazines that also sound like Airbnbs. You of know, course, like yeah, the, yeah. the Blue Mountain <laughs> Biscuit Review. You know, <laughs> <laughs> the Sun. Yeah, um, the, the
0: Honey Drizzle Gazette or something. Like
1: yeah, that. like if if it sounds like a craft beer or yeah. a, a or like a bed and breakfast somewhere, and you put town on or- the end of it. Yeah. That too is publishing me. Um, but so after I'd done that for a few years, I I, I tried my hand at writing a novel, and uh, I got extraordinarily lucky, and I sold that first novel. I was 28 oh, wow. years old. Okay. Um, and then um, shortly after selling the novel, uh, Miramax um, optioned the book to make a movie with Cameron Diaz.
0: Okay, hold on. Pause real quick. I don't mean to cut you <coughs> off, so hold on. So. So not everyone has that story, right? The the majority of the people we talk to, um, you know, it's the MFP program, the Iowa writer workshop. They get thrown into a room with 10 agents. One of them is going to buy the book. And then a year later, it happens. Um, It doesn't happen this way for everyone. Can you kind of just real quick? Can you talk about that moment in time? Like when that first book sold? I mean, can you kind of break that down?
1: You know, and it, the. The experience that MFA students have is not actually that different than the experience that I had at that time. The difference is that I didn't go get my MFA at the time. Um, but I was taking classes at UCLA Extension Writers Program, which is an online writing program that uh, UCLA does through their extension. Um, and I took classes there for two or three years with really good writers. Um, and so it was sort of a de facto MFA for me in those years. And that's where I was writing the short stories. Yeah, And I fell under the tutelage of a writer named Tom Filer. Um, who had had a crazy career. Like, he wrote The Monster with a Million Eyes and had been a B-movie actor and then had gone to write very literary short stories. And, and you know, he won all the right prizes, the you know the push cart, you know, Henry and the Best American and all that sort of stuff. Um, but then he had published a novel and it had gotten a bad review in the New York Times. This was in, like, you know, this is 40 years before either of us were born. Um, it had gotten a bad review in the New York Times, and that was it. Yeah, it crushed him.
0: Yeah.
1: And he's like, I don't ever want to feel the way I felt after that review. So I'm not going to write novels anymore. And so he just became he dedicated himself to being a teacher and writing short stories. And he was my mentor. Um, and he lived on he lived in the guest house on Peter Graves property, the actor Peter Graves. And so he'd go to his house for class. If you parked in the wrong place, Peter Graves would come out in his fucking boxer shorts and be like, "Move your fucking car!" Love it. Love it. <laughs> I'm like, oh, Love sorry, it. Mission Impossible. And this
0: is all in Los
1: Angeles. Yeah, this is all in yeah, L.A. I mean,
0: only in L.A. I mean, it's just it's what a what a crazy town.
1: Yeah, it, but this this group that I was with was filled with fantastic writers, and they really they really pushed me. And so by the time I started writing my novel, it was it was essentially like an MFA experience because I had been in workshops for several years at that point. Um, but you know, the process of finding an agent and selling the book were just as fraught as anyone else. You know, I, I'm still waiting to hear back from a couple of the agents that I queried in 1997 or whatever it was.
0: I'm sure
1: sure they're going to get back to me real soon. Yeah, Um, but I sold my first book, um, you know, it, it had been rejected by like 36 publishers in like three weeks. And I, I began to understand how my former mentor felt. <laughs> um, and then uh, it ended up getting published by uh, Simon Schuster. Um, they had a line of books that MTV published called MTV books and they published the book and, you know, it was sort of a, a little crime novel called uh fake layer cheat. Um, it came out, it got terrible reviews because it was not a very good book. Um, but Miramax had optioned it, like I had said, to for a movie for Cameron Diaz. Who, um, I mean,
0: at that time was the she, she was, was it. it.
1: Yeah, she she was. There's it. something
0: about Mary. I mean, yeah, yeah.
1: Well, so what happened was after Something About Mary, they had bought the book for her. After Something About Mary, or right around then, uh, um, it was it was about the same time, and she decided, oh no, I, I don't want to make noir movies. I want to go win an Academy Award, and that was that. Like like as soon as she said no yeah it was dead yeah yeah um, but that was fine because they had already paid me um but that I mean that's how it works when you have your book options sometimes uh, I mean almost all the time when I sell my books, I get paid a bunch of money, and then nothing happens, and that's fine, mm-hmm. um but it set me on the path that i've I've stayed on for the next twenty years I mean that book came out in two thousand, and I've put out. A book every 18 months basically since that
0: time Mm -hmm. um so that first book comes out uh it's 2000 now we're 20 well now we're in 2021 right Mm -hmm. what have you seen change in this profession in the last oh gosh Uh, yeah i mean you know again we started this podcast off by saying i came across you via twitter right twitter wasn't even obviously a thing 20 years ago um just that alone has changed everyone's lives, obviously, without getting too specific about it. But, you know, half the authors I read I find via Instagram now. And right. if you go on Instagram, half these authors have personalities and it's a whole fucking shtick and whatever. What have you, what are the, the big, biggest changes you've seen in the last 20 years, Do you know, writing these books?
1: Oh, gosh, it's hard to say. I mean, it, you know, the world has changed so many different times. I mean, the world changed after 9-11, you know, the world changed after Obama was elected. The world's gonna change in about six days, um, when Trump's out of office, you know. The the world changed four days ago when the Capitol was attacked. The world changed because there was a pandemic. You know, all these things are happening. The one thing that um that I've seen that I think is the 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 biggest sort of tactical change does have to do with um with social media, you know, it used to be that you'd read a book and you wouldn't know, like the author could be alive or they could have been dead for a hundred years. And All you, you knew know.
0: was that one little fucking photo right. in the back. And that was it.
1: That was it. And you'd be like, Oh, this guy worked as a shrimp boat captain and in a bowling alley and has a degree from NYU. You're like, okay, whatever. And, yeah, like, and he has was, a
0: dog named Sherla.
1: Yeah. And that was it. Like you didn't know anything. Now, any person can go online and they can see me having a conversation with my friends on Facebook or Twitter or whatever that used to be the stuff where you'd have to read the letters after I was dead to find out what we were talking about. Like, if you want to know what's going on in the literary world, you read sort of book Twitter, Go and you see Twitter, everyone yeah. having conversations with each other about whatever's pissing each other Oy off. You know, so that's sort of a fascinating thing. Like, you know, if I, I can't talk shit about people online anymore because they... <laughs> They'd find out that's hard. It's
0: just, it's um, so, yeah. Yeah.
1: So, you know, social media has changed that for the good and for the bad. Now for me, it's, it's an easy thing. You know, I'm an, I'm an extrovert. Um, and so being out there and, and meeting the fans and talking to them and having conversations, is perfectly fine. Yeah. Um, but, you know, plenty of authors don't want to engage with anybody. Um, sure. The they're writer, they're writers, cause we're, you know, we're little mole people. You know you you choose to be a writer not because you want to be on stage. You choose to be a writer because you want to hide behind your book. um so there's there's a little that that's a big thing. you know, ebooks, of course, didn't exist when I first started out. Um so that's a a big difference. not that I ever read ebooks. you, um, you
0: yeah, I mean, you have a bookshop. I mean, we do you know who you know who Bob Leftsets is? Yeah he was just on the podcast and I brought this and I fuck, I mean, you bring up anything to that dude, it's going to spark a fire in him. But we we started talking about, he's like, I haven't read a fucking book since, you know, two thousands. I've been reading Kindles since the day it came out. He's like, and then he got into it and it's worth people who were listening to this podcast, going to that podcast and listening to what he has to talk about just the publishing business. And, you know, and how, They, you know, again, he comes from the music world. So do I, and we can compare the music world losing their business model when Napster came out. Right. Right. I mean, that talk about changing the entire business model. I'm not, you know, I'm a little younger. So when the Kindle came out in my generation, you know, to me, it was, it was just a way to like read more books. Right. But I don't know where it sits in the public conscious right now. I don't. People seem to have it's a love hate thing. Is it more of a yeah, you know it, I, it, do you, it, you hate Amazon or not? You no. but is that what is that what the convo is? I don't know.
1: No, no, I, I like Amazon plenty. They they not own you, but people they own, they own the television rights to Gangsterland. I'm very happy. <laughs> very happy with Amazon. Um, this,
0: this podcast is brought to you by Amazon.
1: Well, uh, in fact, the most recent episode of Literary Disco, my the podcast that I host with.
0: Oh, you have a there. podcast.
1: Yeah, that, okay, the last cool. one was, in fact, brought to them by Amazon, if I remember Fantastic. if I heard the advertising correctly. What was um, the name of it? Literary Disco is awesome. the show cool. that I host. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, the, uh, essentially ebooks have replaced the mass market paperback. You know, the the, the $4 paperback you buy to go on a cruise, right?
0: Yeah. Like Airplane that's, reading, as my father would yeah, call it. Yeah,
1: exactly. And I think that's great, you know, the, the one thing that I think people thought it was going to do that it hasn't done is provide the uh, democratization of independent writing like it does independent music. You know, something like Bandcamp, um, you yeah. know, where I buy a lot of independent artists, um, or even Spotify where, you know, I'm on constantly, where, you know, you can listen to any independent artist and it, you know, it sounds just the same and you have just as much access to them as you do, you know, the Rolling Stones. Of course. People thought that ebooks are going to do that for independent writers, self-published writers, essentially, but it doesn't. And, and the reason is that people are often self-published for a reason, and it's that they're not good enough to be paid, <laughs> and they don't have the people editing their work. And therefore, when the work gets to the marketplace, it's not as good as other stuff. So I can go listen to, you know, an independent rapper that I like, and he's just as good and has just as good of beats as Dre. Um, the difference is that he's making his own money and Dre is a billionaire. Yeah. <laughs> um, but there's not that there's not that in, there's not that indie writer uh, of, of books like there is the indie musician or, or indie film. It just doesn't exist at that same level. Um and I think people thought Kindle was going to do that but it hasn't succeeded in it. It has succeeded in filling Amazon with ebooks that aren't any good but it hasn't made that person explode, you know.
0: Well I think we're talking like gatekeepers, right? You right. know, and with the music business the gatekeepers always been the record label, the A&R person. Right. And, and with music, you know, again I, I people are fucking so uh, no, I, that's all I talk about. But that's the world I'm from. And in the, you know, you make an album, or this guy, whoever puts an album on SoundCloud or whatever, that album shelf life is infinite. You give right. us songs thirty years from later, it's still with books. It's you got a one shot deal. You know, how many books have you reread? You know, I'm saying? a lot. Like, but you well, know, I'm a professor. So okay, okay, I'm but a you know, professor. I, I, <laughs> you know, I, I have some books i'm gonna probably thumb back through for references but you know, i mean music- i have
1: stacks of books just right here because <laughs> i'm a professor you know so i just
0: <laughs> there it is uh, but with the you know with music again yeah you independent artists can put it out there and you can build a following but you're right it's interesting you say that about the kindle how it originally was thought about that's how it was going to bring about a new market and it hasn't is that a good thing or a bad thing
1: Oh, I, I mean, I think if you want to self-publish, putting your book on Kindle is the is the best way to do it. Don't yeah. pay someone. Don't don't you know? Don't give someone ten thousand dollars to design crappy cover art for you. You know, like just put it up on the Kindle. I, you know, I, I um, because
0: a lot of first-time authors are listening to this. You know, and it's yeah, like- you know,
1: it, it's hard to say. You know, as the, I'll, I'll tell you what I would tell my students. So as the yeah. director of the MFA in creative writing and writing for the performing arts at the University of California, Riverside. What I tell my students is, if you want to self-publish, you have got to also be the world's greatest marketer. And in addition to being the world's greatest marketer, you also have to be the world's greatest copy editor. In addition to being the world's greatest copy editor, you also have to be the world's greatest editor. And in addition to being the world's great, so I give them the list of all the things they got to be if they want to do it that way.
0: Reddit gave me that list. The professor didn't give me that. Yeah.
1: List. <laughs> well, you know, I, I just take it from Reddit and hand it to them. But the, because I say it in that voice, it means more. Yeah. I mean, um,
0: yeah. Well we, talked to, well, we talked to Scott and he, you know, he, I think, self-published his first book. It was a novella. And like he said, you know, back then he was working a couple of different jobs. He was he's an L.A. guy, too. And he was originally, I think, pursuing acting. Um, right, first move there. Um, and he put out that first book, you know, but that was a different time, you know. Yeah, yeah the self publishing thing is interesting, you know. I think what was that book, The Martian, right? Matt Damon movie, wasn't that? That was a self published book, but
1: yeah. no, they no, the lottery. Not, so, I it, was, it. it wasn't quite self published. So, Andy oh. Andy, and I are friends. Um, oh, great, cool. And Andy published it online as a blog. Oh, okay. Um, and then it became uh, the, the blog became extraordinarily popular, and then the, he. Finished writing the book when it was bought by Simon Schuster or whoever. He's got a new book coming out in a couple months, actually, um, which you should all buy. I'm a big Andy <laughs> Weir fan. He's a good yeah, dude. Yeah,
0: no, most definitely. Um, and wasn't the same kind of thing with the Fifty Shades of Grey? Didn't that start out as um, f- fan fiction off the Twilight series? And I think oh, she might right, have, right. Yeah, yeah, she got it. His- published that. But again, you know, that's like winning the fucking lot. Yeah,
1: but you know, the reason you know about these things is because they're remarkable. Exactly.
0: Yeah, no. And, you know? and good art's gonna you know, truly good art I think if you can, if the person is intelligent about how they put it out to the world it can find the audience it needs to find um, right. and there's an audience for everything I mean you know we bring up the word Stephen King a lot people either roll their eyes or they agree but the guy sold 800 billion fucking books
1: yeah Steve, Stephen King changed my life when I was a kid
0: did you, did you read on writing
1: uh, I did read on writing yeah, um, yeah. but the thing that Stephen King did for me when I was a kid reading his books in addition to scaring the, the crap out of me is he made me understand that I wasn't the only person on the planet who thought the way that I think, you know, like, Oh, someone else looks at the world and sees this skewed thing or sees a clown and imagines them being horrible. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and and in a way that's what books are really supposed to do for, for kids. You know, you remember those books that mattered to you when you're young because you'd never experienced anything like them before. And you never quite experienced that again. Um, and so Stephen King, when I was, you know, 12, 13 years old and reading his books, um, he he showed me that what I wanted to write about was possible in a way. But more than that, that the dark, weird, funny things or the things that I found funny and weird that I was interested in were not all that unusual. They didn't make me strange. Uh, they made me an artist, you know. And he, he's great. I, I lost an award to Stephen King. <laughs> Um and he, he, Do you think so he the, remembers it? <laughs> probably not. Um, when I was nominated, like they called me and they're like, Hey, you're you know, you're a finalist for this award. It's the Hammett Prize, which is this great big award for for crime fiction. And I was thrilled to death. Yeah. I was like, Oh my god, I'm a finalist for the Hammett Prize. This is great. I can't believe yeah. it. And I called uh I called Brad Mutzer, my friend, and I was like, Oh my god, I'm a finalist for the Hammett Prize, I can't believe it. And he's like, well, Who else are the finalists? And I was like, <laughs> Oh, let me find out. I got to get in line. So I'm like, okay, it's me. I was like, it's, oh, God, it's James Lee Burke. And he's like, oof, oof, okay. Who else? And I was like, um, oh, God, it's Stephen King. Oh. He's like, he's like, well, when you get there, if Stephen King is there, you lost. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, I mean, yeah, I could I mean, that would be like, you know, going up against like Christian Bale or something like that. I mean, yeah.
1: And I was like, shouldn't Stephen King pull himself out of contention? You know, crazy. like, oh, go ahead, Goldberg. Uh, that I dude that of-
0: dude is, I mean, I hope they, if they ever make a movie about him and I, I hope they do it right. That dude had a fucking crazy life. Yeah. Um, he did. I mean, he, I mean, you know, he really was the rock and roll writer that people mm-hmm. try to, you know, really write about. Sorry, that's my bulldog puppy. Um. And Yeah, and wait, everyone, she's a favorite on the podcast. It's Reba. Oh, hi. Yeah, she's a f- eight-month-old bulldog puppy barking outside my window. <laughs> um, I gave her a bone, but she'll give <laughs> it. Well, um,
1: if my dog Rube Goldberg comes in. I, I will show her too. Okay, <laughs>
0: please do. Yeah, but I mean that too. I mean, yeah, for people who don't know, I mean, you know, he was drinking what thirty cases of beer a night. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if he was necessarily
1: a rock and roll uh, writer. I think he was just a drug addict. Well,
0: that's what I'm saying. <laughs> I mean. You know, but people have this idea. You know, they can fictionalize or try to you know create this character, but he was kind of a living character, I guess, in his time. Uh, yeah, you know, that's blast, for sure. blast and slayer because he's open about his drug addiction and shit like that.
1: Yeah, I mean, he was a big coke addict and alcoholic. I mean, he wrote some, he doesn't even remember writing some All of the books.
0: shit. And in the and story you, of his,
1: you read the book and you're like, oh, yeah, I know why he doesn't remember writing
0: it. Yeah, yeah, it's true. I mean, again, but he's, I mean, how many books has he written at
1: this point? Oh. Any
0: idea? I don't 60. Know. I don't know, yeah, a lot. That's crazy. A
1: lot. I mean, he's been publishing books my entire life.
0: 77, I think, Carrie came oh. out.
1: No, I, I think, I want to say, one of his books came out in, like, 74.
0: Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, I mean, Thanks. again, he talks about in on-writing all the rejections he keeps teaching at the time when he was submitting that first book. Um, yeah. So
1: what- I mean, rejection's the thing that, that hardens you for this life. Like, if you can't take rejection, for, for those aspiring writers out there, if you can't take rejection, like I still, like, when I think about those 36 rejections for the first book I wrote, like, it actually gives me PTSD. I'm like, Oh God,
0: we have. Yeah. We have a running chart on the podcast. Janet Fitch is leading it. I have, I have, I got rejected 73 times, but Ooh. I did it, but I did it the wrong way. And Todd, maybe, you know, you could shed light on this, the submission, the querying process. But I was just like, I wrote this little note, no 27,000 word novella. I'm like, let me just query every single agent on the internet. Right. And I did, <laughs> and, and 73 of them were like, we like it, but and then I learned the hard truth of rejection. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, at this point, I don't know if you're even dealing with rejection anymore in your work. But I mean, you, like you said, you you have to get you're gonna get. Rejected. Yeah. yeah. And I know.
1: Janet, I mean, Janet's story is crazy. Janet was oh, rejected. Oh yeah. Do you, do
0: you know Janet? Like, okay. Yeah. yeah you, Janet and I are friends. Oh great, dope. Yeah, yeah.
1: So I mean, I mean, she, if she was on your show, you know, like she was rejected like
0: a like hundred and sixty times. She said she could. <laughs> she she did a wallpaper of her entire yeah. wall um she's fucking awesome. and we i i i fucked up on that podcast because i didn't have enough time you only did 30 minutes i so i could talk to her for three hours
1: she's great um, yeah,
0: she's a wonderful. she's a she's a cool cat um so what what's going on for you right now i mean what are you working on i mean are, are you always working on something i know you're teaching but what does the future kind of have for you well
1: my new book comes out as i said yeah. uh february 2nd so i don't know when this is airing but uh, it's either
0: how would you in a normal world how would you normally be promoting it? Do you ever do readings? Do you do book tours and things like that? Yeah, I
1: would I would be on the road probably yeah. for um you know, 2 months.
0: Oh, what a bummer, fuck.
1: Yeah, yeah, I it is it's upsetting um because I like I like waking up in a courtyard in a small Midwestern town.
0: I've did it for a decade.
1: <laughs> and like you only know yourself by where the pancakes are. Mm-hmm. Um Yeah. I mean, so that's a little upsetting that I don't get to go on tour, but I don't want to die. So that's okay. Um, so normally, yeah, I'd be on the road for two months, but you know, I'm going to do as many events as I possibly can online. You know, we'll have a full schedule out on my website sometime soon. The book launches, you know, on the second. So the events start on the third. Um, and so I'll be doing that for the next two months or so. Um, you know, as many events as I possibly can. And I'm working on a, uh, a screenplay right now um, and on the, um, the TV version of Gangsterland. Um, so those are things I've been working on a bit for The last couple months with uh, with secret people I can't tell you about. Um, well, is that
0: real? I'm sorry th- th- to stop you there, and maybe if we could talk a little bit about that, the difference. Do you you know the difference between writing long form fiction screenplays? I mean, you have a I mean, not necessarily a preference, but do you approach them differently? Is it kind of equal footing for you at this point?
1: No, you know I hadn't written a screenplay in a very very long time actually, um, and so I dedicated this year to getting my chops up for it because yeah. I wanted to do some more TV stuff. Um and so you know I basically have said like this year I'm I'm and when I say this year I actually mean this school year <laughs> so that that's how like time is a flat circle for me and it's yeah, just always the school year so a definitely. year for me is October to June <laughs> um is I'm working on screenplays so I'll be doing that for for a while this year but it's a completely different you know it's a complete completely different way of writing in a completely different way of looking at uh, story. But I knew that I, um, I had some uh, work I had to do on the uh, adaptation of Gangsterland um, that I'm involved with. And then I wanted to write um, a pilot of my own. Um, so I've been doing that. Um, and I'm going to write something else, uh, probably starting next week or so. And then after that, I have to write the next uh, concluding chapter of the Gangsterland saga. So... But- well, the low desert is I, uh connected I, I, but is not finishing it.
0: I feel like you're contradicting yourself though cuz in the beginning you said you only work on one thing at a time. You just named like a dozen things.
1: Well, I finished them. <laughs>
0: ah, okay, got it. Got it. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah, like, I
1: I finish, <laughs> I send it somewhere and then I So you I so a lot of football?
0: Hot, yeah, a lot of hot irons are out there right <laughs> now.
1: Right. Yeah. Lots of stuff. And then, you know, and then um the the teaching and all that uh happens on a on a regular basis, too. You know, when you when you found your own creative writing program at the University of California, it turns out that uh, you don't want to see it fail. Most and definitely. So, for the last fifteen years that I've been in charge of the MFA program, you know, I spend a great deal of time on that because my students are fantastic and I care about them and I want them to succeed. Um, and so, I spend a lot of time working with my students and working with my professors and um, getting all that sort of stuff set up too. So. There's not a lot of downtime, um, but you know the the key I think to a, a successful and long career as a writer is when I sit down to write, I'm ready to write. You know, I don't I I don't concede that writer's block exists. Um, when, I, when I am sitting here, like you know, I right. have to, I, I have to do trick it. myself. You know, I have to play the music. You know, I have to have the coffee the cocaine and then <laughs> and then i can go um That'd but there's a... very rarely any times where i sit down to write where i'm like i can't do it this is not
0: gonna happen i can't do it like, no. yeah yeah i mean, I, mean, I would ask the question but you have so much you know you have such a backlog that at this point it's like you you don't have to convince yourself that you can do it you know that you can do it it's just
1: doing no, you no, no 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 oh really still, the, to this day yeah that's why all those pictures are back there. So when I'm literally, sitting here, so I've got a big screen over here that I write on.
0: True. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So when I'm sitting
1: here and I'm like, well, I don't know how to get out of this scene. I've for never the people written who
0: can't before. see the, the video for the, only the audio. Yeah. Todd is. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. So then I turn around and I look at all these, I'm like,
0: oh, right. I've done this before.
1: Yeah. I've done this before. Yeah.
0: Todd, this has been an absolute pleasure, man. Thanks so much for taking the time. Um first. I, I always do two questions at the end. Uh first question is where are people buying your books from? I know you're a SoCal guy. What bookstores do you like to rep?
1: Oh gosh. Um, you know, I like uh I like Skylight Books in LA. Um, I like uh, Mysterious Galaxy in San Diego, I like Mystery Inc. That's in a new one. I like uh East Bay booksellers in Oakland. Definitely. Yeah. The my uh, the, the former Diesel books. Um yeah. You know, I've been buying a lot of books from Bookshop.org, um, where you know it it all goes through an independent bookstore. So, yeah, people can buy my books wherever they want to. No,
0: and I know. Again, we started this off by saying I found you via Twitter. Uh, you're pretty prolific on there. You're pretty active. Uh, we want people to follow you? What's your handle?
1: It's it's pretty inventive. I don't know. I, I, drum, I don't know Wait, if,
0: dr- wait, drum roll, please. It's at. Todd Goldberg, love it, Todd. This has been a pleasure, man. I, I thought people would be confused by it at first.
1: Like, is it too much?
0: I think you hit it right on the, <laughs> nailed it. Just it's a- a- anything more would have been superfluous.
1: <laughs> and they can they can also uh, listen to um, my strangely and inordinately popular podcast, Literary Disco, which I host yes. with uh, Ryder Strong and Julia Pistel. In fact, this week we interviewed uh, George Saunders
0: oh most definitely yeah of course i
1: geeked out a little bit when i was talking to george saunders i'm like why am i geeking out he's nearly
0: a contemporary
1: but i still geeked out i i barely held my shit together man barely
0: well you did it thank you thank you you for holding your shit together for this podcast (laughs) you're welcome (laughs) all right i'll talk to you later man thanks bye-bye